It's only the little kids that uh, maybe didn't understand or really grasp the gravity of those words. And uh, I thought it was kind of cute that we asked a young, cute little girl to read those, um, maybe to make it more palatable or something. But whenever we hear words like that from the Bible, we're like, what is that all about? And it does arrest us a little bit. They're sobering words, aren't they? Now, in some ways, it's been a sobering week. Um, As Pastor Adam prayed, we've been praying for Hazel Lee as she's had some pretty serious health issues over the last number of months. And uh, Monday morning, we received word that she had taken a turn uh, overnight and that it didn't look good. And already by early Monday afternoon that she had passed. Thursday night, if you were watching any of the sports channels uh, that are available to us, you would have heard that Walter Gretzky had passed away. And then Friday morning was added to that Chris Schultz, who's a former football player and a a football analyst. I always find it sobering when someone that's really not all that much older than myself suddenly passes away. It reminds me of my own fragility and my own mortality. Now, anyone growing up in Canada, and especially Edmonton, knows that Walter Gretzky was Wayne Gretzky's dad. And for the years that Wayne played with the Oilers, and, for, uh, and even ever since then, probably even more so since then, Walter has become this kind of model hockey dad. And Wayne would often credit his dad for the player that he had become. He was his coach and his encourager and his cheerleader. There's no question that there was a deep, committed relationship between Wayne and his father, Walter. Now, many hockey players in the 80s and 90s grew up watching Wayne Gretzky, just like some of you younger ones are now watching Connor McDavid. We admire greatness. And sometimes something happens inside a person that we decide, in fact, that we look at someone and we say, you know what, we want to be more like him, or we want to be more like her. And so when someone great does something, we want to do the same things. They have skills, and so we practice hard to develop the same skills. They, they, they wear certain equipment, and so we want to use those too. Air Jordans, anyone? Gatorade. You know, be like Mike just aged myself. I know some of you have no clue what I'm talking about, but Google it and you'll figure it out. Right? But we look at someone great and we want to become like them. And, and so even maybe to the point of dressing like him, like Gretzky had this signature thing, do you remember, where he tucked like half of his jersey into his pants? And then you'd go to the local rink and you'd see all these kids with his, their jersey tucked into one side of their pants because they wanted to be like someone great. When we decide that we want to be like someone, we commit ourselves to becoming like them, which means we practice, we, we engage in disciplines, we, 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 we spend time being committed to this process of becoming more like this person. And really, it becomes a passionate pursuit for us, one we devote our whole lives to. We even surrender ourselves to it, we might say. 
all because we want to become like him or her. Well, today, I believe that Jesus is calling each of us to make a commitment to follow him passionately in order to become like him. Now, we're coming to the end of our series that we've called Living the Life, which is based on the greatest teaching of Jesus, known as the Sermon on the Mount. So, the conclusion that we're now into um, would be one really long message, trust me. And so, we started this last week with Pastor Adam as he looked at verses 13 through 20 in chapter 7. I'm just going to look at three verses today, 21, 22, and 23 that Sadie Saunders read for us. And then next week, we're going to wrap this up. And I'm glad we don't have any more than three verses today. Because these are hard, sobering words. Jesus doesn't end his sermon with a touching story. In so many ways, Jesus' message would not be like an accepted prototypical message in today's typical preaching class. He wouldn't win any positive message of the year awards. There's really nothing feel good about it. And I think it's a passage that if we didn't have to preach it, we probably wouldn't. One of the reasons we choose to preach through books of the Bible or major sections of the Bible is because then we don't have the choice to skip over some of the tough, hard passages. And so here we are. These may be sobering words, describing a sobering reality, but I believe they're absolutely crucial for every one of us. Now, we've called this series Living the Life. Living the life, because the Sermon on the Mount is a description of life in the kingdom of God. And within chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's gospel, we've really had several mini-series within this larger one. We started way back in the spring. We took a break for the summer, so this hasn't been a year-long series, but it's getting close. But we started with a description of the participants in the kingdom. What kind of character do these people have? Who are those that are blessed? We discovered that those who are poor in spirit and those who mourn and those who meek and those who uh, hunger and thirst after righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those are the people God called blessed. And then we looked at six acts of righteousness or kingdom practices and then three acts of piety or devotion, the, the acts of giving, and prayer, and fasting. Most recently, four acts of commitment. And so now, we've come to these summary verses where Jesus closes with an absolutely clear and direct call to true discipleship. And he says, in in fact, that if you want to live this life that I've been describing for you, in our case, over the last months, in his case, I don't know how long it took him, but it was a long message. If you want to live this life, here's how. So how do we live this life? We need to go back and just review a few things 
as I said, this is kind of one running conclusion, and so for this to stand alone apart from Pastor Adam's message next week might not make a lot of sense. Now, it was a great message, and so I'd encourage you, if you're watching online or even if you're here today and you don't know what that message was about, go back and, uh, and watch it and put it in this context. But basically, Jesus is saying this, that if we are called to live this life, here's how we do it. First of all, we enter through the narrow gate. This is what he says um, in verse 13 of chapter 7. And we discovered last week that the gate is a reference to Jesus himself. And it's just another way to say that we would put our trust in him, that we commit our lives to him as being our teacher and our leader and our guide. Jesus said this about himself in John chapter 10 and verse 9. He says, I am the gate. Pretty unequivocal, right? Very clear and direct. And he says this, whoever enters through me, that is the gate, will be saved. And so entering through the narrow gate is critically important because the alternative of going through the wide gate that leads to a broad road, which leads to ultimately destruction. But the narrow or the tiny gate and the narrow way lead to life. And Jesus, in fact, there is teaching about not one destination, but two. And there's both a now focus and a future focus. Because right after he says, I'm the gate and whoever enters through me will be saved, in verse 10 he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I have come that they would have life and have it to the full. And so whenever we talk about the gospel, what we're talking about is it literally means the good news. And in order for the good news to really be powerful, we need to understand that there's bad news. And the bad news is that sin has separated us from God. That there's this gap that we can't, it's a relational distance. We can't do anything to make up that, you know, kind of bridge that gap. And so we're stuck. And the Bible says that the cost of sin or the wages of sin ultimately is death. Death and destruction. But the good news is that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. When on the cross he says it is finished, he's basically saying the price has been paid completely. It's done. You don't need to worry about this anymore. And then he rose again and defeated death. And then everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. That's the good news. But that life, that eternal life, starts now in this life and then lasts forever. And so we need to think about the gospel past, present, and future. Where we think about it in the context of the fact that with respect to our past, our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. And the future that we spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. But we can't ever forget about the present and the now. That it is about an ongoing relationship with Jesus. This, that, that, that leads to a full and abundant life. A life that is full of joy. A life that is full of meaning. A life that is full of purpose. 
And if this is true of the narrow gate and the narrow way, it's also a present and future reality for those who live apart from Jesus now. And Jesus calls it the broad road or the popular way, which leads ultimately, he says, to destruction. Both now with lost purpose, a lack of joy, an abundance of fear, and ultimately an eternity separated from God in hell. Those are the two destinations. And we don't spend enough time thinking about this. I told you, these are sobering words. But it gets worse. Because there's a sober reality here that Jesus describes that there are some. In fact, he even says there are many. There are many, he says, who will express commitment to Jesus but won't ultimately enter the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 21. If you're following along in your Bibles, and I hope you are, because we're going to dive into these three verses that we've already had read for us. Beginning in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I don't know if there are more sobering words in the whole Bible. We're going to come to some that are more sobering than that, but this is pretty dramatic, isn't it? It's jarring. By referring to those who call him Lord, he's actually talking about those who actually recognize his spiritual authority. But there is something missing. Something has gone wrong. And these disciples that they might call themselves that. They may even go to church. They may even serve. They may even give. And they're nice people, and they're moral people, and they're good people. But then Jesus confronts us with this reality. Not everyone who calls Jesus Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if that's not a sobering reality, I don't know what is. And these words of Jesus are a wake-up call for those who think they have entered the narrow gate or who think they're walking the narrow way and who think they know their final destination, but they have deceived themselves and have a false sense of security. And the person that Jesus describes here, maybe that person, you know, who raised their hand or maybe walked an aisle or prayed a prayer, maybe as a child in Sunday school or a teenager at camp or maybe even as an adult, and then they went to church and they hung out with other Christians and they did what Christians do and they say what Christians say, but there was never any change or transformation of their life. And apart from going to church, there was no difference between them and anyone else that was walking on the broad road. There was nothing that set them apart from most other worldly people. They had the same desires and the same dreams and the same passions and the same pursuits. They did the same things. They went to the same places. And for them... 
giving their life to Jesus. You know, inviting Jesus into their hearts was motivated by nothing more than the promise of forgiveness of sins for the past and eternal life for the future. And yes, those are good things, and they are part of the gospel. But think about it for a moment. If we ask somebody, do you want to have your sins forgiven? Who's going to say, no, I'm fine. I'm I'm good. Nobody's going to say that. You want to go to heaven? Everyone, yep, we want to do that. Sounds really good. Not really sure about it, but sounds better than the alternative. I mean, who's going to say no to that? And the whole focus is on entering the gate. But there is no life transformation that happens when we actually walk the narrow way, the Jesus way. That's the invitation. So let me just try to unpack this some more. I mean, what can we say about the people that Jesus is describing here? Because I don't know about you, but this unsettles me. It, 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 it's sobering, and I don't want to be there. So one thing we can say is this. They recognize Jesus' authority, but they don't obey his teaching. And, and in other words, they call him Lord, that he has some authority. It's a sign of respect. They acknowledge his authority. But he says they don't obey his teaching. In fact, they even go so far as to say, Lord, Lord. It's like this this double emphasis on that. It's really polite. We're very sincere about this. Verse 21, we already looked at the first part. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh Uh-oh, what's this about? But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The will of my Father is just another way of saying Jesus' teaching. Jesus spoke on behalf of God. He, He represented God's will through his teaching. And so when Jesus says, only the one who does the will of my Father, it's code for Jesus' teaching. Only the one who's committed to obedience to Jesus' teaching is the one who will ultimately enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, very important to make this distinction. Is it the obedience that gets you through the gate? No. No. <laughs> but it's our obedience that is evidence that we have understood what Jesus Christ has done for us. Right? We love because he first loved us. John 14, 23, we read these words. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me. We probably would all say, yeah, I love Jesus. Anyone who loves me then will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. 1 John 2 verses 4 and 6. Whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person. Just think of those words. I know him but I don't do what he says. 
And John says that the person who says that is actually a liar. The truth is not in that person. He says, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. This is how we know. Listen, not because I prayed a prayer, not because I walked an aisle, but because whoever claims to live in him must what? Live as Jesus We must live as Jesus did. And so what's the takeaway from there? We've got to discover how Jesus lived. So we immerse ourselves in his word. We read the gospels. We discover the character and the behaviors and the activities of Jesus. We listen to his word when he says, you know what? The greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. When we do those things, it's evidence that we've entered the narrow gate. Eugene Peterson, in the message, this will maybe just help you understand this a little bit more in case you're still trying to connect the dots. He puts it this way. He says, knowing the correct password, right? Like we've got we to have a word saying master, master, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is serious obedience, doing what my Father wills. Do you see that? It's serious obedience. And that's the sign that we are fully committed to following and loving Jesus. That we're fully committed to becoming like Him. Well, the second thing is that they recognize Jesus' authority, but they don't submit to His Lordship. They recognize Jesus' authority, but they don't submit to his lordship. So in the first case, they recognize Jesus' authority, but they don't obey his teaching. And secondly, they don't submit to his lordship. And so if you look at verse 22, he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, there they are again, plate, recognition of his authority. Did we not prophesy in your name, recognizing that Prophecies done in his authority, and in your name drive out demons, exorcisms are done in his authority, and your name perform many miracles. Friends, this is a sobering reality to me. Jesus doesn't just say, you know, a few people are going to find themselves in this awkward spot or an odd person here and there, but he actually says, many, many are going to say to me, on that day. When Jesus says on that day, he's referring to judgment day. And there is going to be a day of reckoning for everyone. And on that day of reckoning, many, not just a few, will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy? Didn't we drive out demons? Didn't we perform many miracles? And remember, he's now still talking about those who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, they're sobering words. Because he's saying that all of our actions really mean nothing if they're not really actually motivated by a fully surrendered heart. Do you see why I said this was a really bad way to end a sermon? I mean, there's just no point in trying to stand before God on judgment day and then 
try to list off all of our accomplishments and our actions and our works as some kind of evidence that we were actually walking the narrow way. Friends, I know this is hard. As I said to someone this morning about the text, they said, yeah, the the verses that every Christian fears. I can put it into my own context, and it's actually quite unsettling. Lord, Lord, did I not preach sermons in your name? Did I not pray with and care for people in your name? And did I not pray for healing in your name? Did I not counsel people and pray with them in your name? Did I not officiate weddings and funerals in your name? Did I not baptize in your name? And if I put words in Jesus' mouth, it's tying this all together. I think it's just, well, maybe you did do all those things in your name, but where was your heart? Was your heart fully surrendered? Or were you just doing it your way, in your own strength, in your own power? Friend, that's why when I sing songs like love, so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Are we prepared to submit to his total lordship? He is king of the kingdom. And if we're participants in that kingdom, we come before him and surrender humility, and we give up control, and we stop trying to manage our lives, and we just say, Jesus, lead me on. Well, there's one last one. Are you ready for this? Jesus is describing people here who recognize Jesus' authority, but they don't pursue a relationship with him. They recognize his authority, but they have no interest in having a relationship with him, really getting to know him. Because look at verse 23. He says, then I will tell them plainly. He's talking to those who have come and said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? He says, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Could there possibly be more frightening words? I mean, these are terrible words. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about these words. He says, if anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ had said this, we would not believe it. This verse is one of the, probably the most unsettling, uncomfortable verses in the Bible. It's sobering and it's serious. I never knew you. You may be saying, well, I, I, I said all the right things. I, I did all the right things. <clears throat> and again, Jesus is addressing those who call him Lord, and they do things in his name. They claim to be following Jesus, but they're actually not even in a relationship with him. And so he says, I never knew you. <clears throat> Which just underscores that they never truly were his disciples to begin with. 
They may have acknowledged the narrow gate. The Greek word translated, excuse me, new, K-N-E-W, when he says, I never knew you, is gnosko. It's a Greek word that means to know, to understand. And I love this, listen to this. To learn to know a person through direct personal experience, implying a continuity of relationship. In other words, the emphasis of the word is not just to learn about, but the emphasis is really on an interpersonal relationship that is experienced, that is lived out. In other words, this isn't some kind of head knowledge, but it is a a relational or a heart knowledge. This isn't, you know, knowing in our head that some math equation, you know, two times three equals six, but it is knowing someone intimately in the way that I could say, I know Tina. I know her in an intimate way. I know her in a way that no one else knows her. Now, if you really want to draw this out a little bit, um, turn in your Bibles, if you want, to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. And let me just show you how different translations take these, these, these in, the, in Genesis, the Hebrew word, and try to try to translate it to capture the essence of the meaning. And so the English Standard versions say, now Adam knew his wife, Eve, or knew Eve his wife, sorry, and then she conceived. I mean, what's going on there? It's a rhetorical question, don't, don't answer that. But then the Christian Standard Bible, which has actually become a bit of my go-to version lately, says the man was intimate with his wife and she conceived and bore a son. The NIV, which is probably the most common tra- translation that probably many are, are using, um, gets right to it. Adam made love to his wife and she became pregnant. So what are we saying here? This word new is an important word. It implies a relational intimacy. And for Jesus to say, I never knew you, he's saying that there was no relationship. There was no intimacy. There was no deep heart connection. And because of that, on that day, he will have to say to many, with a broken heart, I'm sure, depart from me, I never knew you. You evildoers. And that word literally means those who practice lawlessness. You who lived like I never gave you a law to obey. You who lived like you just did whatever you wanted to do. You didn't consult me about any major decisions. You, you ignored my word. You didn't even consider what things were sin in your life. You just went on your merry way. I never knew you. Friends, do you understand the weight and the seriousness of these words? Let me just try to summarize what 
Jesus is saying. And wrap it up. It's basically saying there's going to come a day where everything's going to be laid bare. Everything's going to be out in the open. Out in the open. And there will be some who in their life sounded like a Christian, acted like a Christian, claimed to have a relationship with, with Jesus. But at the end of the day, they didn't obey or surrender or pursue a relationship with Jesus because their heart was still uncommitted because they were not fully committed to following Jesus. You can't follow Jesus half-heartedly. And the sobering reality is that we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we are a Christian when actually we're simply nice, moral people who do good things, but we don't know Jesus. And worse yet, he says if that's true of us, he doesn't know us. A few years ago, I had wrongly assumed, and I say, I shouldn't maybe say wrongly up front because then you'll, you'll know where the story is going, but I thought I was continuing my relationship with my insurance company. And I filled out my renewal forms and I sent them in and just kind of didn't pay attention to it. And my payment monthly was taken, uh, was automatically paid. I slept well at night knowing that I was insured And when my kids used our cars, uh, that they were insured, they were covered. But after a month or two, it finally dawned on me that there was no payment that was coming out of my bank account. So I don't know if I had paid in advance, and I was a little bit confused. And so I thought I'd better phone and find out what was going on. And to my horror, I discovered that they had, in fact, decided to cancel my insurance. Well, five years earlier, we had a long kind of protracted issue with the total vehicle and the value of the car, and and it just seemed like they decided that this was now a convenient time to end the relationship without actually telling me. I was angry. I was upset. Because for a couple of months, I blissfully had been driving uninsured vehicles, as did Tina and the kids. And when I discovered that truth, I'm telling you, it was upsetting, sobering, and unsettling. Because I had to imagine myself going, can you imagine getting pulled over for a minor traffic violation? You know, you're speeding or you didn't stop at a stop sign, $100 ticket, can I see your registration insurance? And, oh, it's expired. You don't actually have insurance. I think the, 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 the cost of driving without insurance, the ticket, is like, 2500 bucks or something like that. It's not chump change. It's costly. But worse yet, what if one of us had been in an accident with our vehicles? Or we injured somebody? What a mess that would have been. So what do you think I did? As soon as I discovered that all of my assumptions were wrong, I made sure that I immediately made it right. Nobody took those vehicles out of the car until I had entered into another relationship with an insurance company and I could actually then rest easy because I was in good hands. Literally. So what does living the life then mean? Let me just summarize. We enter the narrow gate. 
It's the absolute starting point. This is where we put our trust in Jesus. And we don't trust in that decision. We trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We trust that he died in our place. We trust that he rose again after dying in our place. He defeated death. And we simply live in the joy of that reality. Right? And for salvation, Jesus is enough. That's all. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith in Christ alone. Not in the actual act of putting your trust in Him, but actually putting your trust in Him. But the invitation is not just to enter the gate, but it's to actually walk the narrow way. And the evidence that we have entered the narrow gate then is, in fact, how we then live. And we live the life by living in obedience. If you take everything that I said negatively about those that that won't enter the kingdom of heaven, just flip it around and you know where we're going with this. We live in obedience. We're, We're fully devoted to following Jesus. We're devoted to doing the Father's will. We're devoted to walking in the way of Jesus. That is our heart's intent. That is what we commit our life to doing. And we figure it out. Secondly, we're living this life by living in submission. Where we surrender and control. And inbred in each of us from birth is a desire to want to run our own lives and to do our own thing. And we don't want anybody telling us what we can and cannot do. And so we fight against that. But once we surrender that control, once we affirm Jesus' lordship of our lives, we can then live this life. Lastly, we live in relationship where we go through our days practicing his presence. We know that he is with us and he is in us and we're abiding in him. John 14 and 15. And so the question that we have to just ask ourselves, is Jesus a living daily reality in our lives? And this doesn't mean that we're going to do this perfectly. Sometimes it means that we go walk with Jesus three steps forward, but then we do something stupid and we go two steps back. And then the next time we go two steps forward and we take three steps back because we've really blown it. It's not sinless perfection. But it's a recognition that this is a struggle that we live out daily and we're going to meet those struggles sometimes with victories and sometimes with failures. And our struggle with sin is actually evidence that we have trusted in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is convicting us and we experience the brokenness of sin. I heard a speaker one time say, he goes, you know, you know that you're heart is really being inclined towards Jesus and you're growing in holiness that when in the act of sinning you find yourself confessing. It's almost like the length of time between the sin and the confession says something about where our heart's at and what our intent is. And so when we fail, when we sin, because we are going to do this, listen, 
This isn't about perfection. But when we do, we're quick to confess and repent and turn back to Jesus and we accept the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. And over time, we begin to see progress in holiness. And when we do this, we start to see his work. We see the fruit of transformation in our lives. And ultimately, that's what it comes down to is if we fully commit ourselves to following Jesus, fully commit then we will be transformed through this relationship with Jesus. We will become like the one that we commit ourselves to becoming like. And ultimately, that is the true test. Am I living a transformed life made possible only by the work of God in my life? That is living the life here and now. Most of us have smartphones, right? I grew up in Edmonton, and I know my way around the city quite well because I grew up before the times of GPS and Google Maps. But even now, I find myself, when I'm going somewhere familiar, I'll still enter the address in um, because I want to find the quickest, most efficient route. I want to know if there's any traffic I'm going to run into and all of those kind of things. So if you use Google Maps or Apple Maps or whatever your preferred way of going around, let me just ask you this. Do you trust it? Because if you trust it, you then follow the guidance. And every once in a while when I'm doing this, I'm like, you know what? I know a better way. I know a shortcut. I'm going to take this route. I'm going to do things my way. Recalculating, recalculating, recalculating. But if you trust the directions, then you follow them. You go where it tells you to go. And friends, that's about as simple as I can tell you what it means to follow Jesus Christ. You follow the directions that he gives you. And it requires that we obey his directions. It requires that we submit to those directions. It requires that we actually have a relationship with him. Friends, we're going to go right into communion. And so if you need uh, a pre-filled cup and wafer, if you're here with us or if you're at home, now is the time to very quickly run and grab those elements if you don't already have them. But I'm telling you, this was not an easy message to prepare for, and I'm telling you, it wasn't easy to share it. But friends, it's these elements that remind us of the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus. And I just feel it's so perfectly timed in in all of this as we wrap up this series, as we're heading towards Easter, as we're in this season of Lent. Communion is for us an opportunity to say thank you. To say thank you to Jesus. And it reminds us that we are only saved because Jesus was willing to give of himself and to shed his blood on the cross. These elements just simply remind us that he died. That he died for us. And as we've been in this season of Lent, we've been saying this is a season of 
preparation, and that part of that preparation is examination. And when we examine ourselves, it brings us to, often leads us to repentance. And that's why we've been taking the time during the service to, to find something specific, because, man, we can't repent for everything all at once. In reading the instructions that even the Apostle Paul left for the church in Corinthians, he says, you know, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, you need to examine yourself. And if nothing else, I hope that this message causes us all to just pause long enough to examine ourselves. Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 13, I believe it is, he he says, test yourself. Examine yourselves and test yourself to see if you are in the faith. So this is a great place to start. Maybe think back to that time where you did fully commit your life to following Jesus. And if you're thinking, I'm having a hard time. I don't know if I did. Herb, you you scared the you-know-what out of me. It's okay. But to say, Jesus, I'm coming back to you. I'm coming back. I want to fully commit my life to following you as Savior and as Lord. And if you've never, ever made that decision, you know what? You shouldn't eat this bread or drink this cup because you don't have that personal relationship with Jesus. It makes no sense to acknowledge what He did for you without ever receiving what He did for you. Just as it makes no sense to recognize His authority and then not live in obedience, surrender, relationship. After we eat this bread, we're going to sing a song, Lord, I give you my heart. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come already now. You can gather here and be ready. But Jesus took these elements and he took the bread and he gave thanks. And he said, this bread, it represents my body that was given for you. And we eat it in remembrance of what he has done for us. And we say, thank you, Jesus, because you died on the cross. You pay the penalty for my sins. And I say, thank you. And after supper, he took the cup and he said, this, this cup, this cup represents the new covenant. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So, Father, we thank you for these elements. We thank you that Jesus in that upper room took these simple common elements of a meal a piece of bread and broke it a cup of juice 
And he gave his disciples, his true disciples, something to remember him by. Something that brings them back to the cross. And I pray, Father, for each of us today, you would take us back to that place where we entered the gate, the narrow gate. We put our trust in you. And Father, maybe there have been times where we, we haven't lived that out. It hasn't been the intent of our heart. We've wandered off far. We've not paid attention to you or your word. In many ways, we haven't given you a second thought. And Lord, these words today have I pray that maybe they've landed on some fertile soil in people's hearts today. God, you know. You know what's at stake. So I pray that you just draw people to yourself as only you can. That you would find people who willingly commit their lives to fully following you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.